Well done. Um, okay, Mark, Mark 7, 24. Uh, let me read this real quick. Um, all right. So Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right one. <laughs> I'm all thrown off now. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Um, let me pray, and then let's get going. Uh, God, thank you so much for all of your scripture. All of your word is true and good. Um, thank you for this. Thank you for um, your gospel writer of John Mark and what he brings um, to the table in uh, viewership of you. Um, God, we just pray that today is a blessing to um, all of us as we just learn under your teaching and your truth today. I uh, would give you this time, and we pray, amen. All right, you guys doing well? Excellent, welcome. Well, hey, we are all, we're in week 13 of Mark in chapter 7, and I've really enjoyed Mark so far. I don't know if you guys have really dove into Mark as much. Obviously, we did John here. Um, Matthew's like a really easy one to go into. Mark is just different. Mark's really good. It's the shortest one, which sometimes is really attractive, right? Um, but from Mark's perspective, it's just, it's been cool what he's been able to bring out. So it's been really fun just so you guys, like for me to just study and kind of get into the mindset of that. I hope it's been enlightening um, for all of you guys. But Jesus has been moving throughout the region, turning heads, causing questions, and people are wondering, who is this guy? Who is this miracle worker? Who's this one that keeps showing up? Is, is he the Messiah? Is he like a prophet of old? Is he just a crazy person? And last week we looked at Jesus um, giving a teaching on what makes someone ceremoniously clean or unclean. And we know if you know anything about the ancient Israelite traditions, there's lots, an incredible list to make that happen. Um, but Jesus drops this bombshell, and go listen to last week, as Randall taught on, on Jesus dropping this bombshell on them, of it's not what's going on on the outside that makes you unclean. It's actually what's from the inside that makes you unclean. Well, the Pharisees, as you can imagine, they don't get this. They don't like it. This messes with their religion. 
Um, but now Jesus is going on to prove his point. Jesus is now going to move from talking about ceremoniously clean food and, and unclean food and unclean items, and now he's going to move towards, let me show you clean and unclean people. Okay, he's going to move into this. And, and from an ancient Jewish perspective, the absolutely unclean are Gentiles. Okay, like the, the literal definition for Gentile is not a Jew, <laughs> not Jewish. So literally there's like the Jewish and then anyone else. Okay, so li- literally anyone else that's not from Jewish heritage. And by default, then they're not under God's covenant. Therefore, they do not have to follow the laws. Therefore, they are ceremoniously unclean. Okay, so we all can get that. Now, relationship between the Israelites and the Gentiles is not necessarily hostile, but there's definitely this divide in status. We are God's people. You are not. And the problem with that is that long ago, God made a covenant with Abraham. Okay, Genesis 2. He says, I will make, or 12, sorry, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And he goes on to say that you will be a blessing to all families of the earth, all nations. Obviously, there's some blessings not being dished out to the Gentiles. Okay, there was, again, there was this big divide between those who followed God. And as we saw last week, many of the leaders of the people who say they follow God were actually hypocrites in how they lived this out, especially against those outside of the Jews. So Jesus is beginning a ministry now to fulfill that covenant to Abraham to be a blessing to others. And it's kind of like a, it's, it's happening, but it's not yet sort of situation. Uh, it'd be like someone who, who's having like deep marital issues or family problems deciding then to write a book on how to have a healthy marriage. Um, and this is kind of what Jesus is doing here. Like we got to have some things figured out with the people of God first to be the true witness to the rest of the world, to be the example. Now, I love context. I love background. I like the, to nerd out on kind of the history of where we're at to get our minds into it. I think it helps us understand where Jesus is coming from. Um, there's a few, key, a few key phrases here that are easy to pass over, and let's tell us a lot. So the first is the location. So if you read in your scriptures, you see that they're in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, let's talk about that real quick. Both cities are north of Jerusalem, and both with not-so-great history. Okay, Tyre and Sidon, they were both coastal cities in the region of Phoenicia, and Tyre specifically was a busy center for commercial trade. Okay, so really busy, really famous. They were world-famous for their purple dye, which actually the sister city Sidon discovered. It was from like some kind of mussel or some kind of uh, clam or something like that. And it was so rare and so expensive that it was always related to royalty because that's the only person that could afford it, which is kind of fascinating. They were famous for this. So, but materialism was a huge thing for them. It was a word that would have described Tyre and Sidon. That's where you go to get stuff, to be in splendor, to, to, to live lavishly. Okay, status, wealth, self-sufficiency, it's what it was built off of. The surrounding area was very rocky and fortified. Tyre was a huge city, it was an incredible stronghold. Biblically, this area represented unrepentance due to their history, okay? Without going into like the full thing, of it, here's the spark notes. When God gave ancient Israel the land, the promised land, he, he asked them to go in and drive out the surrounding nations. 
the ones that were following other gods so they wouldn't be plagued by that, okay? The regions of Tyre and Sidon, however, they never completely drove out. And it left this, this influence that kind of kept bringing in idolatry, kept bringing in other ways of life to the Israelite people. One of the most notable uh, plagues or influences in Israel's history, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, was the marriage of Israel's king Ahab to the princess of Sidon, Jezebel. Okay, first Kings 16, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Okay, so like this marriage is like, oh no, you were supposed to not be with those people, and now you're literally intermarrying with them. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but Jezebel was wrought with pagan worship, consistently seducing Israel to other gods and practices. And there began all these prophecies against Tyre and Sidon as this, as this example of unrepentance. Let me read a few to you. This was the prophet Zechariah. The Lord spoke through him. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Whew, not good. The uh, Lord speaks through Ezekiel 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you make your heart like the heart of gold, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you and most ruthless of nations. They shall draw their sword against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. And that was directly to Tyre. Then a few verses later to Sidon. Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will manifest my glory in your midst. They shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. Not good, right? So Tyre and Sidon, they have this long history of being a briar or thorn in the side of Israel, and God has wanted it to be removed. But now we're back to Jesus, okay? Back to our context today. He willingly enters into this area. Not as famous, it's not as big as it once was, but he willingly enters into this area. Now, the cities are quite different, of course, um, but it's still primarily a Gentile area. And the Jews in general deem this to be an unclean space full of unclean people. Okay, so just a second ago, Jesus was just scolding the Pharisees for what they thought was clean or unclean. And it's actually what comes out of a person from the inside that makes them clean or unclean, not the other way around. So we're, we're in it. Jesus says in seven, chapter 7, 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he just got talk, done talking about this interpersonal cleanliness to the Jews. Now he's willingly venturing into unclean territory to be with unclean people. And remember, remember, we're not saying like unclean people, like they just haven't bathed in a long time, right? Ceremoniously unclean according to Levitical law. Okay, this should not have been a welcoming place for a Jewish rabbi. Okay, this is not where like someone just rolls in. It's like, here I am. This would have been a little, again, maybe not hostile, but not a welcoming place. Potentially, that's the reason why he enters and, and does not want to be known there. Okay, potentially that's why, because he knows he could cause a fuss, um, which just, it's funny that he cannot be hidden. I love that line, because it just kind of speaks to his aura, his magnitude, like trying to hide Jesus. Yes, he's this this gentle and lowly carpenter slash teacher from Nazareth. He's showing up like, who would this guy be to these people? Like this, is, this should go unnoticed and he cannot even hide his very presence. So let's get into it today. 
Verse 25, chapter 7. But immediately, of course, as soon as he gets there, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Immediately. Jesus enters the house, maybe puts his, I don't know if he has a sombrero, I don't know what they were. He puts it on the hook, and the woman's there, right? Verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Okay, this is another line that's easy to skip over, but it's telling us something. First, this was a Gentile woman, okay, not a Jew. Gentiles don't just walk up to Jewish rabbis and demand something of them. Secondly, she was a Syrophoenician by birth. Okay, track with me. Rome taken over the land, okay? They had these provinces then to govern different areas of the land. Syria was one of these provinces that governed the land of Phoenicia. So Syria, Phoenicia, Syro-Phoenician, okay? Tracking with me? Good? All right. So she was born into this Syria-governed Phoenicia, okay? So not only is she outside of Jewish law, but she's also subjugated to Rome. So there's so many layers of who would this Jewish rabbi be to her? She's so far removed from this being an important person in her life. But she runs to Jesus, immediately falls down at his feet. Like this posture would have been wild. This was incredible respect, not hostility, not indifference, but respect and reverence. It's also the posture of grief. She's so distraught. We're told that her daughter has an unclean spirit, something inside of her that was unclean, which by Jesus' very definition to the Pharisees would have actually made her unclean, something inside unclean. Her mother was distraught. We aren't told much about the daughter or what the mother has already tried with her, but later in Mark, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, we're told about a boy with an unclean spirit. This is Mark 9, 18. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. A little bit late, a couple of verses later, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Like, not good. And if, that's, if there's anything related happening to this little girl, that's terrible, right? Of course, this mother's heart is breaking for her girl. Um, and Jesus, he, uh, they have this fascinating interaction that takes some dissecting. Verse 27, he says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Kind of intense, right? I don't know if you read that first glance and you're like, I don't know what you could say about that. It is possible, it is possible to read this and see Jesus just ripping on the Gentiles. Like here is his moment to just burn them really good. Okay, it's, it's possible to read that, calling them dogs compared to kids. Partly because that's exactly <laughs> what he did. However, not in the offensive way that you and I would probably think uh, or take it today. So dogs today, of course, how many are dog owners? Oh, yeah, uh, hundreds of you, yeah. So dog owners, so most of us, dogs are cute and fluffy. They're usually pets, okay? Nothing in ancient Israel, like, forbids dogs. However, they were highly practical people, so dogs were useful, okay? So if it was a yard dog, it'd be useful, or it would tend the sheep, or it was just a stray, okay? Now, don't think stray, like, down the street, there's a poster on the thing, right? So I, I've had a couple experiences where I've taken a bunch of high scores down to Mexico for a mission trip, okay? It wasn't just my own thing. It was through a church. <laughs> um, but we were there, and I've experienced some, like, some rural parts of Mexico that were beautiful and wonderful. Um, but there's lots of dogs, 
There's lots of dogs here. And, and these dogs, kind of like potential violence aside, you, you don't want to pet. There are fleas abundantly. There's all sorts of injuries on dogs. There's stuff coming out of places. It's just the whole thing is not super great. Um, we consistently told our high schoolers, please don't touch the dogs, which led to this freshman girl snuggling with one in the back of the team van, which was amazing. I still itch in places sometimes. Um, but Gentiles were referred to as dogs by the Jewish community, not as like demeaning of their worth, but rather in terms of ritualistic cleanliness standards, okay? So dogs was just kind of their little bit aggressive term for you're just unclean, okay? It's kind of like that, just seeing the dog that's just, you don't want to go near that dog, okay? So they didn't, these are people, they didn't observe any Levitical laws that the people of Israel were called to keep. So they were in many ways perpetually unclean. So for Jesus to use children versus dogs is a way of saying ceremoniously clean versus ceremoniously unclean, Israel versus Gentile. And one can only assume that by bread, okay, because he brought up this analogy, he is either meaning his teachings, his healing power, or, and we have kind of the rest of the scriptures to argue this point, his very presence, as we were told in John, that he is the bread of life. And here's the irony. The clean people, quote, he just told off because they thought cleanliness comes from what is shown on the outside. We just looked last week at how the Pharisees were showing all the right things on the outside, but in reality, we're not loving God on the inside. Conversely, this Gentile woman, completely unclean on the outside, but here she is spilling her heart, what's on the inside, to Jesus. She responds, verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Whew, profound. Like, what a statement. Now, for most of us, if we see someone having a sandwich, we're not that excited about crumbs, right? I mean, you're not growing on the ground trying to catch them, right? But if you're starving, if you're desperate, you haven't eaten for days, you see just the tiniest crumb of something, you take all that crumb. Like, that is everything. That crumb is life. See, this is, a, this is the problem. And this is just my opinion. You could call it a hot take if you wanted to. But I just think we are not desperate. We are not often desperate for Jesus. Okay, just think about it. I'm not trying to be offensive, right? I'm in that. But desperate means like there's little to no hope. Like something is impossible unless something or someone steps in. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm entirely in this statement. I'm just saying if Jesus lets us down, we have other places to go. There's some of that feeling, right? Like there's, there's things we can fall back on. There's, there's chocolate. There's, there's enough chocolate cake in the world to cover a couple of things, right? We want the whole thing or none of it. We don't want to go all in for something that might not pan out. But this Gentile woman is desperate for Jesus. Using the analogy of bread at the dinner table, she is looking for what Jesus has been doing in Galilee and the surrounding areas. She's looking at his healings. She's looking at his teaching. She's looking at who he is, his example of a human. She is humbly and desperate enough to even take a taste, to experience just the smallest crumb of what God has been doing over there with the Israelites at the big kid table. Right? Remember just two chapters ago, this radical story of a woman who had been, had internal bleeding for 12 years. And this is what she thought. This is Mark 5, 28. She thought, if I just even touch even his garments, I will be made well. Just a crumb, just a touch. 
Now this Gentile woman, she grieves for her daughter. She's heard but rumors about this Jesus, and if she can even just have a crumb of what he has to offer, she believes it will do something. Let's look what it does. Verse 29, And Jesus said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon God. Incredible, right? Jesus just proved what he had been teaching the Pharisees. This ceremoniously unclean woman, everything on the outside is unclean, has more faith in her heart for who Jesus is than the ceremoniously outside clean Jewish leaders who are rejecting him in their hearts. You see this juxtaposition that Jesus is doing here. The power of God worked powerfully in her family, healing her daughter. And here's the crazy part. That's just a crumb for Jesus. A crumb was life-changing for this family, right? Like a crumb cast out unclean spirits. There's this, there's this amazing uh, Tim Keller quote that we've said before, and we love Tim Keller, um, but he, he, I just think he nails it. He says, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you, right? Think about it. Her faith was substantial. She came to this Jewish rabbi. She shouldn't have done this kind of thing, but she came to him. But even the smallest faith with an infinite God, it's exponential, right? Then it's about God. It's not about the faith. Again, like, like um, Tim Keller said, it's the object of the faith. And Jesus, he's not done yet. We're going to continue in our passage. As soon as this happens, as soon as he's trying to unveil this bombshell that he's showing us, he returned, verse 31, from the region of Tyre. Now he's going through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. So Jesus then moves to Sidon. He encounters a deaf man who has a speech impediment. Lay his hand on him is, is much more of, uh, will you give your blessing of him more than expectation of healing? So expectations were kind of low, but still like, would you bless this man? And then you get ar arguably like the oddest move of Jesus' whole career, right? Uh, verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Okay, so I remember watching like football or sports. I'm a big sports fan. I like that. And I remember watching like a, an athlete would get hurt and then the trainer would come out and like obviously the pain is in the ankle and the trainer will start like massaging his shoulders or like taking his hand and do Have you ever seen this? And I'm just like, dude, bro, like did you go to school? Like the pain, <laughs> the pain is there. I can see it. You know, I'm here. Anyways, I'm not a doctor. Um, but I like Jesus' style, right? He just like, just grab the problem. You can't hear? Go for the ears. You can't speech good? Grab the tongue. It's straightforward. I like it. Like, I'm, I'm kind of like a does it hurt where it's bleeding kind of guy, you know? Like, like that's, that's, I get that. So remember, we're still in this majority Gentile population, but they're bringing this guy for Jesus to bless, not necessarily looking for healing, nor a wet willy, I would imagine. Now, an important note that there was a prophecy that was said to be fulfilled when the Messiah comes. This is pretty cool. This is a prophecy through Isaiah, Isaiah 35. Listen to this. This is when the Lord will reveal himself, when the Messiah will come to save. Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So cool. 
Jesus is going to heal a blind man in Mark 8. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. Jesus healed a lame man. Remember, his friends laid him down on the mat in Mark 2. He's healing a deaf and mute guy right here in chapter 7. The wilderness and desert are places without life, generally referring to the surrounding regions of Israel. Like Jesus is bringing life and life abundantly, how could this not be the Messiah? Remember, Mark is constantly hitting us with this question of who is this guy? Everyone's trying to figure it out. He's bringing life. So Jesus takes this man aside so that it's only them. Now remember, this man couldn't hear, he couldn't speak, but he could see. He's watching Jesus touch the very parts of him that I would imagine he is probably the most insecure about. I would imagine this man, from his perspective, would say the deafness and the speech impediment are the worst parts about him. That's probably what he would confess. If I didn't have this in my life, if I didn't have these, I could live better, follow God better, do whatever, right? This Jewish rabbi enters into his world. He's alone, takes him aside. Jesus uses spittle, and in the passage, Jesus groans, right? He can't hear, so he's not speaking. He's not asking him questions. Jesus groans. He enters the mental world of this man. He looks to the heavens, and he cries out, be opened. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And I love this because Jesus literally just gave this guy the ability to talk, and then Jesus charged him to tell no one. <laughs> but the more he charged him, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Like, good, good try, Jesus. No doubt Jesus had more to do, and he didn't want to necessarily attract larger crowds here as well, but it was, it was just too good to keep a secret. And again, Mark is building this ongoing narrative, who is Jesus? And while the Jewish leaders are sitting at home, offended and angry at Jesus, these unclean Gentiles are proclaiming his good news. Verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Which, of course, they probably didn't know, but how is that not a nod back to Isaiah 35? Pretty sweet that this is certainly the Messiah. Now, I want to get to the point that we're seeing this cycle here, okay? It, starting in chapter 6, we see this cycle starting to happen. We see among the Jewish community that there is a miraculous feeding. Okay, we just had the feeding of the 5,000. There's this miraculous feeding. Then it's followed by the Pharisees' unbelief, followed by acts of healing ending in a confession, Okay, so we just saw all that. The feeding, the Pharisees don't believe, he just healed, and then now the people are saying he's doing all things well, confessing uh, what they believe Jesus to be. Next week, we're going to walk through most of chapter 8, and if you look ahead, go, go ahead, it's not cheating, and if you look ahead, there is a miraculous feeding of the multitude, there's Pharisees' unbelief followed by acts of healing followed by a confession. It's pretty cool, there's these cycles that Mark is kind of saying in Jesus. And next week, it's not the same. There's some twists and some turns. It's pretty great. Um, but all that to say, we're watching the Lord work intentionally on his people, creating an order to the madness that is all around them. And he is truly doing all things well. Somehow he is encouraging and building up the Gentile community while also trying to encourage and build up the Jewish community all at the same time. But what I want to leave us with today is looking back on the few characters we've been introduced to, there's questions that their stories challenge us with today. So just hear these. 
the mother, okay, with her life, with her story, would you consider yourself desperate for Jesus? Like, would you consider, would you say that you live in a way with your faith that just a crumb would be enough? Just a crumb with an infinite God is more than we could ask for or imagine. Potentially, this is why Jesus, a few chapters earlier, said this about the kingdom of God, 430. He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, just a crumb. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Just a crumb that's blessed to become a blessing, right? Think about the deaf mute man. Are you and I willing to trust Jesus with the most vulnerable, challenging aspects of your life? Do you believe the God of the universe knows you, sees you with all your intricacies, and can meet you right where you are at? I, our staff prayed and walked through uh, Psalm 139. I encourage anyone to do that. It's an incredible psalm. Um, and I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but David has this incredible psalm where he's just crying out to God, and he starts it. The first line is, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Proclamation of you know everything about me. And then there's a bunch of verses, and then this is how he ends his psalm. So then search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. It doesn't just end there. God knows you and there's action of keep knowing me. Reveal to me, right? Reveal to me where the wayward parts of me are. I need you to, to, to know me more. And the Pharisees, those are characters we were introduced to. Clean on the outside, but unclean on the inside. So wrapped up with themselves and their traditions, they miss what God actually cares about and where he is at work and are judging the people that are truly displaying hearts of faith and desperation for Jesus. What did Jesus himself say in Mark 2? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And after reading all of this story, this is what we're faced with today. In our time, in our culture, do we believe Jesus is God? Are we desperate for his presence with us? Are we bringing our whole selves and lives to him? Not holding back, not compartmentalizing what we're willing to entrust him or not, but going all in. And listen, in a world where there are a lot of things to care about, there are so many things to take a stance on. Are we seeking Jesus and his presence and desiring him above all else? Here's the scary thing, okay, that Jesus is revealing. The Pharisees, the ones who seem to be doing it, the Pharisees could have a religion without Jesus, okay? It's possible to do the right things and not be in step with God. But as we're seeing, it's consistently the people who are encountering and chasing after Jesus whose lives are truly being changed. And the question for all of us this morning are, are we desperate for Jesus? Just a crumb. Are we desperate for Jesus? If your answer is yes, 
If your answer is, I want it to be, if your answer is anywhere in that realm, let's respond to that today. I want to stop talking because it is the time to respond to our King, Jesus. And you know, if you've been here at Hub City, you know how we do that. We sing praises to God, proclaim who He is. We sing these songs written by man, but it's in prayer, just crying out to our God, desperate for Him, okay? We pray this access that we have to talk to our Savior on a daily basis, anytime, anywhere. That's so crazy. You don't have to be a certain place to pray. You, he is with you, right? We give, because that's just, that's something that Jesus talks about a ton. It's not about money. It's not about amount. It's about the treasures we store up. It's the things we hold on to. I'll give God this, but I won't give this. And we give so that the community can be blessed. And I would say, most importantly, we get to receive in communion. So we prepared communion. Um, and thank you, Sandy, for preparing communion this morning. And it's just it's just amazing to think about and remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had his closest followers together. And he said, guys, you're not going to understand this till later, but he, this, this bread is like my body that's broken for you. This, this, this wine at the time, we have juice, is like my blood that is going to be spilled for you. And when you partake in it, remember my sacrifice. Remember that it is by grace you've been saved. Remember that I love you enough to, take, to lay down my life for you to be saved. And we get to go in response to that. Let me pray and let's go into that right now.